and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel journalist and editor. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Well, to say I've been excited to share this episode with you is a bit of an understatement. Sir Michael Palin. Where do you start? He's a legendary comedian, part of pop culture history, as one of Monty Python. He's a BAFTA-winning actor, a best-selling author, and one of our most loved travel documentarians and travel writers. His journeys across the world, beginning with Around the World in 80 Days, then Pole to Pole, Full Circle, Sahara, Himalaya, Brazil, they were a key part of how many of us discovered the world growing up through his eyes and through his warmth and curiosity with whoever he encountered along the way. Most introductions to Sir Michael mention how he is known to be maybe the nicest person in show business. I just think what a lovely reputation to have and he certainly lived up to it. He invited me into his London family home for this chat where he's lived since 1968 And he shared so generously such wonderful travel stories. We zigzag all over the globe with this one from Saharan Africa to Western Scotland and the Amazon to North Korea. These are the travel diaries of a true travel legend, Sir Michael Palin. I hope you enjoy them. Sir Michael Palin, welcome to the Travel Diaries. It's such an honour to have you on today. Oh, gosh. I'm overwhelmed. No, I love talking about travel and and uh, it's nice to be able to do it, especially at a time like this when one's had a bit more time to think about travelling and why you travel and what you miss about not travelling. Mm. Um, so I've been doing a lot of looking back at my travels and the things I've done for various reasons. I think that's quite important because otherwise you tend to, it's all output and no input, as it were. There are times when you just want to stop and think, I've done this, I've seen that. This is amazing. This is extraordinary. I've learned this. I've learned that. Rather than just going through. You can be so busy travelling through all these countries and then it gives you that time to Mm. reflect on Mm. it. Time for reflection. Mm. Yes, that's right. I hope you don't mind me gushing a little bit, but when I came up with the idea for for this podcast where I wanted to interview people who had inspired and influenced my travel choices... You were the guest I had in mind as my dream guest. So for yours to be the first face I see, one of the very first faces I see after four months of lockdown, it's just such an honour to have you on. Ah, well, that's great. Very nice to talk to you personally. Lockdown has mainly been sort of through screens and Zooms, which is quite um, unsatisfactory in a way. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, so many people know you primarily as a python in their mind. Obviously, this is such an iconic part. Of Quite so- old people now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's such an iconic part of people's of popular culture. And then for someone like me, obviously, I'm familiar with Monty Python and, and it's incredible. But I was born in 88, just the year after you filmed mm. Around the World in 80 Days. So I, I know you primarily as a traveller. And from watching your TV shows. So is it quite interesting? You're cherished for both. What do people kind of, when they stop you in the street, for example, are they more likely to speak to you about Python or tra- travel now, would you say? Um, it is quite interesting. I, I mean, people love Python still. Uh, and w- all of us who produced Python and wrote it and performed it are quite amazed that there's a sort of 
you know, it's gone through two generations now and you've got nine or ten-year-olds saying, you know, Spanish Inquisition and all that, <laughs> wanting you to sing the Lumberjack song, which is kind of quite... It's, it's lovely, really, but it's quite strange. Whereas I feel that the travel... Um, uh, the travel programmes that I've done are sort of more... I've done them more recently. They're slightly more relevant to, to my life in general. I've written books which have involved... Mm-hmm. Not been about travel, but have involved the rest of the world and journeys and all that sort of thing. So it's closer to what I'm doing now. And you get a, a lot of feedback from people who aren't from Britain or, or you know, settled here, first-generation people, who are very pleased that you've been to their country and seen it in a way that other people don't. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I was met an Ethiopian guy in the street and he just said, Oh, we, we, we loved your programme on Ethiopia it's because it didn't mention famines or floods or plagues. Mind you, it was in the middle of a war when we went there. Yes. But you just said it's really nice. You just showed the people there. And um, a lot of Indians loved the, you know, around the World in 80 Days series because I spent a lot of time going across India in the train and just meeting people on the train. So there's a lot of feedback from non-Brits, which mm. I, I, it's great. It's very rewarding. Mm. And there is, there's so much travel that we could delve into. So, so let's get started with uncovering your travel diaries. Chapter one, going back to the very beginning, is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? Well, um, it depends how you define travel. It's quite sort of interesting. I, I, um, I was born in Sheffield. And my first memories of being able to do what I wanted to do, which was to see a world beyond the end of our road, beyond the end of our street, over the hill. And I was lucky enough to be born and brought up in the west side of Sheffield. And I was able to go cycling from the age of 10, quite unaccompanied, um, into Derbyshire and the Peak District and the wonderful reservoirs around there. and I suppose that was my first sort of real introduction to getting away and being on my own somewhere else that was slightly thrilling and um, and different. Uh, but as the, the real the memory I suppose that was most strongest was going on holiday to Norfolk, which is where my father came from, mm-hmm. and seeing the sea for the first time. And also, I mean, Norfolk was a different place from, from Yorkshire. Um, obviously, it was flat and the buildings were made of brick rather than of stone and all that. But it was by the sea and I thought it was just an extraordinary kind of um, wonderland, you know, of sandy beaches and these sort of uh, pine woods. And and I, I suppose because it, it was associated with holidays, with being off school, without having to do any be be worried about doing any work or anything like that, that made it even better. But yes, the first time I saw the sea um, uh, from the top of a place called Pretty Corner, it was it's oh, the yeah. highest point in Norfolk. It's mm-hmm. about it's about 120 feet up or something like that. And you stop there, and my father would say, "There." Oh boy, there's the sea, and you looked at it, and there it was grey as the North Sea normally is, yeah. but it was the sea, it was the ocean, it was another sort of element of of the pattern of of escape, which I suppose travel's all about. And at that age, do you feel like you had a spark of wanderlust ignited in you, or did that come later? No, I think the spark of wanderlust um, was there very early on. My choice of reading was um, I loved anything that involved 
Travel, Geographical Magazine, National Geographic Magazine, um, stories I would read which took place in foreign countries. I mean, I was less interested in Enid Blyton, more interested in Biggles and the Gobi Desert and things like mm. that. So I suppose there was a tendency for me to be, uh, want to romanticise foreign travel and, and different places. Uh, and the accounts of different explorers meant, you know, Scott and, and uh, Shackleton and all those. And also, I, I do remember I was dragged off to church every Sunday by my parents. Um, and um, the high point for me was when we had missionaries to uh, speakers. And these are people from Africa, usually mm. with a few sort of fingers missing or something like that because they've been sort of out in the bush uh, you know sort of baptizing people in the Limpopo when crocodiles were going by uh, and they these are people who had been to Africa you could see it in their faces you could see the ruddiness of the face they were weather beaten they had slightly mad eyes and uh, I, I lapped that up I thought wow that would be a wonderful wonderful thing to do not lose your fingers but go to Africa and, and when did you first go abroad? I first went abroad when I was um, 19 and I was at Oxford University. Mm-hmm. And I think it was my first year and I joined a skiing party which was going to a place called Zölden in Austria. Mm-hmm. Good memory? Um, yes, it was good. I, I've actually, by that time, you know... It wasn't so much about travelling, uh, and it was about meeting people, and especially mm. people of the other sex. And so, you know, I remember Zeldon just sort of ogling, well, not ogling, but sort of, you know, seeing these wonderful sort of willowy girls on their skis <laughs> down the slopes and all that. And I think I remember more of that than I do about the marvellous mountains of the Alps <laughs> at that time. So, I think that's probably quite a relatable I'm afraid it is at that, at that, that age. age. Yes, yes, yeah. So chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. What would that be? I think it would probably be Venice, which must be many people's answer. But I didn't go abroad a lot. I think I went on two skiing holidays. Um, and then was, um, you know, after I was at Oxford and then writing for uh, David Frost and things like that, we were based at home. That's where work was. Mm-hmm. But the year after we married, Helen and I married in 1966, and we went for on our first really sort of significant holiday to Venice in late 1967. Helen was just pregnant with our first son, Tom. And... Um, I remember reading a book at her, her mother and father's house up, up near Cambridge, and they had Jan Morris's book on Venice, and I was just entranced by it. Uh, I just read it, and it was just so wonderful. I remember thinking, can it be as good as this? It's sort of, somehow it's bound to be disappointing. And when I got to Venice, not only did I, I, I suppose, fall in love with it, it may be a bit strong, but I did... I did find it an enchanted place. And I found that uh, Jan Morris's view of Venice and interpretation of Venice and and evocation of Venice was just the, almost the same as in practice as I'd read in the book. So I was able to, it was like going, I mean, my wife and I had never been to Venice before. Actually, Helen had been before, but I'd never been to Venice before. But I had this other companion, which was the book itself, and which sort of stimulated me and, and, and sort of 
enhanced my whole joy of the place yeah mm. and did that in turn inspire you as a travel writer did you take from those experiences and want to channel that into the the, pu- the published mm. works you've got now i i um always enjoyed writing uh, i enjoyed other people's writing and i enjoyed writing myself whenever i traveled i always took a notebook with me um and jotted things down um and uh, i suppose reading morris's book on venice and realizing how what you can capture as a travel writer made me feel yes that i would like to emulate that in some shape or form and see Mm. if i could concentrate my writing on the places i go to have you seen that amazing footage during lockdown of Venice and how the canals are crystal clear and dolphins are swimming through? It makes me want to see it in this yes. unusual I, I, way. I know. I mean, I, I, one feels very possessive of, of, of a place. And really, the people who live there are the ones who possess it. And nearly, we did nearly buy a house there at one time, but really? it didn't work out. We were gazumped or whatever the Italian for gazumped is. <laughs> but yes, it, it's, it's still very, very beautiful. And uh, I'd, I'd go back there any time. And are there any memories of travelling with the pythons that stand out to you? I, I've read that you have went on some great writing excursions to different places. Yes, in fact, um, working with the pythons enabled me to go and see places that I never expected I would see. Mm. Um, because, yeah, I was getting on for... I was 28, 29, 30, and hadn't really travelled a lot. Mm-hmm. And Terry Jones and myself were very keen on on making sure that when we made films or even bits of filming within the Python show, that we didn't have to do it all in a studio in London. We felt, you know, let's go out, let's see the wonderful sort of, let's go around the country, let's get these marvellous backgrounds and yeah. and uh, locations. So we sort of pushed the other Pythons um, and to places like Scotland. I mean, Scotland I'm hugely fond of. And I discovered that through Python, really. Um, and in 1964, I'd been at the Edinburgh Festival, which changed my life because I'd been a, you know, a, a review there and performing and writing and people liked it and it led me to the bbc and and on to python but um i saw more of scotland when we went up and did something like monty python and the holy grail where it's very important for us to use these the wonderful um west coast of scotland because it was free you know we didn't have any money yes um and then the other strand was that eric and john particularly and, and graham to a certain extent didn't really like the british winter I've always rather liked the seasons and I'm quite happy to have go through winter, but they didn't like it. So if we were going to go away and write, we should go somewhere warm. And Eric had a friend, Eric has many very good friends, well-connected, who had a villa in Barbados. So we end up flying out to Barbados and spending two weeks in this wonderful villa, classical villa built in 1947, right by the ocean and absolutely stunning. So Python did did sort of... Um, take me or allow me to go to places that I'd not been to before but it it didn't really satisfy everything I wanted which was to go and see the whole world in my lifetime yeah (laughs) well speaking of which then at what stage did your travel broadcasting career come about was that by chance or was that a decision that you made actively no it was by chance like a lot of things in my life it depended on someone else's energy and uh, ambition rather than my own (laughs) um what had happened was i was 
we made Monty Python, Terry Jones and myself did a series called Ripping Yarns, and in the early 80s I did a number of films, including um, Brazil with Terry Gilliam and, and a private function and Alan Bennett film. And finally, um, not finally, but the last of a run of five or six films I did uh, was A Fish Called Wanda. Oh, and my favourite films. A great film. It was lovely to do as well. But um, at the end of that, I thought, what am I going to do now? I had an idea of doing a film about my family, but that was way off. And I was in a sort of limbo, and a BBC producer came and said, look, we've, we've got this idea for doing, following Jules Verne's 80 Days Around the World. But nowadays, uh, and using still using only the transport that Jules Verne would have had, so only land transport, no planes, just to see if we can do it. We can you can actually do it in eighty days, and it'd be in real time, and you'd be filmed all the way through, and it would be quite a sort of um, you know the, a real sort of um, time impetus to the whole thing. And so, so as I say, it was someone else's idea, and I, I said. Absolutely, this sounds fantastic. I, 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 want, like to, dream, I want to see the rest gig, of the world. Yeah. <laughs> but others had turned it down. You know, Miles Kington, very good journalist, had turned it down. Clive James had turned it down. Um, um, Noel Edmonds had turned it down. Noel Edmonds. So I wasn't could the first. Could have been a completely different vibe. Well, could yeah. be with him. <laughs> he could have gone around the world. I could have done Mr. Blobby. What a trade off that might have been. And. A lot of people, when I mentioned that I was interviewing you today, people do say, oh, 80 days, 80 days. You know, that really has stuck mm. in people's minds as um, just such a seminal piece of TV. Mm. When you've been filming, not just 80 days, but all your different series, um, is there a, a destination that has resonated with the viewers more than you might have expected? Um, one of the really interesting things about... The journeys, I mean, 80 Days was supposed to be a one-off. Mm. It, had a, it had a single idea, it had to beat the 80 Days or not. Um, and at the end of it, we all felt, well, that's it. And it was only because it was so successful that we started to do other journeys. And I think it was successful not because of any one particular country or anything like that. It was, I think it was a style we developed of travelling in a kind of accidental way. And, and, and brushing up against things you didn't quite understand and showing on camera that you didn't understand things. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't an Alan Wicker, who I incidentally also turned down the, around the world in 80 days. I wasn't somebody who had uh, summed up exactly what I was seeing and given a reporter's overview. I was someone stumbling along buying tickets in foreign languages yeah. um, that I didn't understand. And, um, you know, having, having sort of uh, being shaved by blind barbers in Bombay and all that. So it was the people, people seemed to just enjoy traveling with me. And one of the great satisfactions of a future series that we did was to get large viewing audiences for completely remote places. I mean, we, mm. people asked what's the most satisfying thing about this series. I said, getting 8 million viewers for crossing Mauritania. You know, most yeah. people don't know where Mauritania is. Yeah. And we managed to hold an 8 million audience from Mauritania, then, you know, on, on into, um, I can't remember, Mali, yes, Mali. after that. Mm. That's so interesting. I was going to ask you specifically about that because there's a website um, online that lists all the places that you've been and all the series that um, mm. they were in and the things that you did in, in those particular right. destinations, which was, I, I mean, I could have asked you about every single one of them individually, but 
uh, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, those were the ones that piqued my interest in a way because not only have they really never been mentioned on the podcast, but they're some, a place, places that I don't really know a great deal about. So what are some of your standout memories of being in that, that region of Sahara? It was, um, I mean, the desert is such a spectacular sort of background to everything. Yeah. Um, the desert conditions everything. You know, when you, you, I mean, traveling through Morocco was, was, was one of those wonderful journeys I've done, right from uh, Tangier, which is very sort of, bit European and then to Fez a beautiful old city but very sort of closed people Mm -hmm. are behind doors and life goes on behind behind closed doors Mm -hmm. Um, then to Marrakesh becoming rather more commercial and then people don't normally go on south of that but to go south of that then you really are in the desert I remember just realizing that we were no more hotels you're you're in tents and the wind blows at night, you're going to wake up in the morning with sand about an inch in your tent. Even the bread you buy will have been baked outside and will have bits of grit in it. <laughs> so there's a, there's a feeling immediately you are possessed by the desert. Everything is, is sort of, the context is this great big, very vulnerable expanse. There's nowhere really to hide there when yeah. the wind blows and all that. So going across Mauritania, and then the people from the desert, these um, Mauritanians with their wonderful... Uh, blue robes they had sort of light blue robes spectacular looking people it's um, amazing against color of the desert yes uh, yes against the desert and then the fact that you can just drive anywhere i mean you drive there's no sort of left or right side of the road you just go go south and thundering along the desert and then trying to find somewhere at night to to stop and finding old french forts uh, which are all really run down and pretty disgusting accommodation inside, and yet it's so beaugest. It's kind of got a it's got a wonderful romantic feel to it, yeah. but it was very very uncomfortable. And then the next thing that I really valued was we went to places like Chingeti, um, which is an old city and, and like Timbuktu really was it was a very important city on trading routes from north to south, right across the Sahara. And there are many old manuscripts there, the wonderful old books dating 400, 500, 600 mm. years ago. And they're not kept in any sort of proper kind of um, temperature-controlled environment. They're just mm. people have them in their houses. And old men would show me these things, these marvelous bits of calligraphy dating from oh. the 12th century. And you realized how... Um, rich and valuable and important was this route through the desert from north to south. And of course, once the Portuguese sailed around North Africa, um, that was the end of it. And so for the last 300 years, those ancient cities have been slowly decaying and almost literally filling up with, with, with sand. Oh, you know, you could see sort of streets where there was sort of buildings that weren't occupied. There was sand six feet up against the door and all that. Extraordinary. What an extraordinary Mm. place. Yeah. Wow. So chapter three then, let's move on to, that is the trip where you learned the most about yourself. This is really difficult because I don't think there's any one place I learned about myself. It's a long, long process. Mm. Um, But... I think that probably a very certainly a very significant episode for me was when we did Around the World in 80 Days and a, a series of accidents happened early on and 
our journey around the Saudi Arabian Peninsula to Oman and then on to Bombay on a Dow all fell apart because the ship wasn't there. So the director and myself drove across the Saudi Peninsula because I wasn't allowed to break the rules and fly. The crew flew. Mm -hmm. And we ended up in a Dow from Dubai. We weren't intended to go from Dubai. Um, and we hadn't really prepared anything from Dubai. So they had to find a Dow that would take us, whereas the one in Oman had agreed to do it or been paid. So I've got a new boat, um, well, old boat, but um, new people running it, a Gujarati crew, uh, 18 fishermen, uh, only one of whom spoke a bit of English. And we were going to have to entrust ourselves and our and the success of the series to people we didn't really know on a boat that had you just slept in the open on sacks and all that. And it was during that seven-day period, moving very, very slowly uh, along the Persian Gulf and out into the, um, into the Indian Ocean, that I suddenly realised that I wasn't having to be an actor and I wasn't having to pretend to, be, to play some role uh, like a reporter or, or um, I don't know, or, or even a sort of competition um, candidate. I was just... I was with these people and the only thing that worked was just to, to get to know them and talk to them and try and make some connections. And we had all the time in the world. We could not go anywhere else. They could not go anywhere else. And this interaction between people from a completely different background, a sort of technically sort of very, very sort of primitive world, but people who knew how to sail dows and on whom we absolutely depended to get to Bombay and, and, and carry on our journey. And so the creation of this relationship really changed me a lot because it made me feel by the end of it, well, I don't have to do anything other than be myself. You don't have to try and pretend to play some role and be, you know, Phileas Fogg, the superior Englishman abroad who always gets it wrong. And it was a delight, really. And it also changed me because I... I always was slightly apprehensive of travel because I was uh, worried about making a fool of myself because I didn't speak of the language and didn't understand all the different currencies and different ways of doing things. Mm. And I thought this would be, you know, be difficult. And you realise that actually, in the right circumstances, the people you meet want to talk to you too. They're not blank faces saying, what are you talking about? They want to know what, what you're doing, how you live your life. Oh, Kasim, you know, he sort of must have been in his 70s who was very fascinated by what I had on my Sonny Walkman, and it was a Bruce Springsteen tape. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, you know, give it to me. So I put the headphones on, and this Bruce Springsteen blasted out, and I thought, this is going to be, you know, this is not, not <laughs> yeah. for an ancient uh, Gujarati fisherman. But he smiled a lot, and then he, then he said, more, more. He knew a bit of English, and he just wanted the volume up. He wanted the volume up more and more, so by the final time, his head must have been blown apart by... <laughs> The, um, uh, the Springsteen tape. So that, that way of connecting was a wonderful sort of relief. I felt this is great. If I can travel, I can go anywhere if, if we can get this sort of contact. We learnt a few words of each other's language, mainly by gesture, by sharing things, by talking. You know, about the power of human connection. The power of human connection, yes. Wasn't, it wasn't sort of that the rest of the world doesn't want to talk to you and is a frightening place. Quite the opposite. The rest of the world is fascinated by mm. you. And you must try and sort of repay that 
Um, and their hospitality was wonderful. They, we brought food from Sainsbury's. <laughs> she thought, well, this will see from us across, see us across the Indian. Yeah, some of it was, yeah. On the down. See us down the Persian Gulf. <laughs> Did they try any of that? No, uh, they, they saw a bit of sort of tin tuna being uh, unrolled onto a plate and, <laughs> and I think all of us agreed it didn't look terribly nice. No. And they were making their curry from fish they caught, from very mm. basic stuff. And they said, oh, please, uh, share it. And they shared their food with us and it was, their food was wonderful. wonderful. So it was a sharing um, and this, as I say, sort of realisation that the world was... A, can be a very very welcoming place mm. and, and they, they did that shape then how you approached travel yes. from that point onwards yes i i mean i realized that the you, you know when we did the rest of around the world in eight days there were various things were set up you know sort of a rolls royce meeting me in hong kong and going to some party with the with the the expats in hong kong which was fairly dreadful you know i realized i don't actually want to meet english abroad they're yeah. the last thing people i want to meet i want to meet people you know from totally different worlds different cultures and that we had the chance to do that on pole to pole mm-hmm. um, and because 80 days was successful and we had the audience it was a bit of a gamble could we take an audience with us for an you know eight hours or whatever it is from pole to pole without a being a sort of um mcguffin like can he get there in time um you know will, 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 will he you know, is a there a, is there a story way. a narrative um written by jules verne to go with it and there wasn't so it was just pure travel um and it worked and we got we didn't know of course until it went out but we got very good audiences there and from then on i, I was able to just go and enjoy different parts of the world and and, and, tr- and be exposed to di- lots of different places and different cultures. Um, and that became a rather important part of how we chose where to go. Mm. So we didn't, we didn't really ever do Europe particularly. We did New Europe, which was the Eastern Europe at mm-hmm. one time. But the idea of going to sort of Paris or even New York, something like that didn't seem, that wasn't where I wanted to go. I mm. wanted to go somewhere off the beaten track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chapter four then. God, this is a tough one for you, I'm sure. Your all-time favourite destination. Can you pick one for us? Oh, it, uh, that is, is really so, so difficult. I think that I would have to say that the west coast of Scotland has remained for me one of the mo- places I'm happiest uh, when I travel. I mean, it's not... Part of it is because it's not far away. You can mm-hmm. get there quite easily. And you go up to, you know, good cities, sort of um, like Glasgow and Edinburgh, and then go on from there up to the Highlands and the West Coast. But whenever I've been up there, I feel it's like a microcosm of all the places I've been in the world. That You've got the mountains. I mean, they're, they're not high. They're, what, 3,000 feet or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, they're much more approachable. You can actually sort of drive and you can climb most of the mountains in Scotland. Whereas you go to the Rockies, it's it's wonderful, it's sublime, but it's all rather sort of overwhelming. Yeah. So it's the accessibility of the beauty of Scotland that I like very, very much. And also, I just rather sort of, um, I love the islands and, and the area around the west coast there and Rannoch Moor and Glencoe. Mm-hmm. And that's remained with me for a very very long time you know it's not that i can always go back there and feel this is a, almost the perfect destination for me 
I'm actually planning a Scottish road trip at the moment, having never been to Western Scotland. So are you able to give me a few tips as some of the spots I mustn't miss? Well, you, you mustn't miss the whole entry into Glencoe and that uh, the drive through Glencoe, especially it starts at Rannock Moor, this great bleak moor. It's a wonderful name, Rannock Moor. Mm. There's nothing much Just there. Just evokes the Yes, it does. There. And then you get into Glencoe and you've got some really quite significant peaks and, and ridges and if you get a chance, go and see my friend Hamish McInnes, the great mountain climber, mm-hmm. who's 90. I think he's 90 today, actually, yes. Um, yeah. And he uh, he first helped us on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. He was the man who threw the bodies into the gorge of eternal peril <laughs> if they got their question wrong. And he was head of mountain rescue at the time. <laughs> so he, the knew, irony. he knew how to throw bodies in. Uh, <clears throat> so go and see him. Um, because it's always good to have someone up there who can explain to you the wonders of the place and what to look for. Mm. And then just drive up the coast from, from Glencoe or on the other side, eastern Scotland, which is uh, the hills are more gentle, the Ockhill Hills and all that, and uh, lovely places like Aberfeldy, which has one of the best bookshops in the world there. Okay. Yes. Oh. Used to be in Kentish Town. Now he's up in Aberfeldy. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> what a change. So you can go, must go there as well. And then if you really want to be wild, go to the very, very north, Caithness and Sutherland, which has some of the oldest, I think some of the oldest rock anywhere in the world. Mm. I can't wait. Can't <laughs> wait. Do you have um, a favourite city? Do you like cities? Yes, I do like cities because uh, I like people. I like meeting people. And I, I love the way cities work. Um, New York, I suppose, is my favourite other city from London because it's it's just so sensationally sort of showy and mm. wonderful. But, but yeah, somehow New York gets away with it. It isn't sort of, it isn't sort of just... Shape, shameless wealth and, and glittering skyscrapers. There is something more to it, um, and especially in, in Manhattan. There's a certain architectural beauty and a harmony to New York. And it's always rather thrilling. I think it was the first great American city and travelling across the bridges from the airport or, or wherever the into, into the city. Kind of incomparable, really. Yes, yes. And I like the fact that you've got these enormous... Or tall buildings in streets which also have tiny little shops for a coffee or a, a, a cobbler or something like that yeah. there is street very good street life in new york which i think is very very important yeah so i like new york and then if a bit more cosmopolitan i'd go to um istanbul istanbul really because it's sort of geo sort of its position in the world mm. between asia East and europe but the other other city i've discovered more recently, which I, I, I found very stimulating, um, was Calcutta, or Kolkata. Mm. Uh, I was very... I, I wanted to go there, just I'd read about it so much, and so much history involves Bengal and all that, and this great capital. What was it really like? And, and going there, I found, to my surprise, uh, that this communist-controlled city, a communist control since 1945, had preserved some of the... British colonial monuments, including a yeah, great statue of Queen Victoria, beautifully. Yeah. And the tourists went and looked at all the, sort of the old British colonial buildings and thought it was marvellous, and they'd play cricket there and all that. But at the same time, you've got probably, I don't know, a million people living on the street all the time. Mm. Nowhere, they've got no home to go to. Mm. Terrific problem. Um, and you just don't know what, how a city like that survives from day to day. It's terrific vibrancy. First thing in the morning, wham, there's noise, there's people doing things. And it, 
I'm just fascinated in how cities survive um, when they should be just they should be derelict by now mm. or they should be swamped by by human problems and somehow they manage to encompass human problems and use it and use the energy so he starts suddenly thinking well the most sterile cities are the ones which just have which which simply have very very tall skyscrapers and no street life at all um and a, a city depends on on its on its street life and the people it's the, there. it's the people that uh, are yeah, the energy, and, yeah, and don't have to be rich people, quite the opposite. It's just mm. everyday work that takes place on the street. And I found that in Kolkata, Kolkata a lot. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Chapter five is your hidden gem. Now, I saw uh, an interview with you where they revealed a map of all the places in the world that you've been. And there were more places in the world that you had been than you hadn't been. I mean, there were very few that really? were left. Yeah. Mm. Very few. Mm. So I'm sure that you have uncovered a great deal of hidden gems along the way. Is there one that stands out for you? Well, there is one that stands out. And again, I, 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 
I'm always wary of picking the one because it sounds like the others. I know it's so didn't match hard. Up. You yeah, know what I mean. Yeah. And also, and I want evolves. to be—I want to be a bit original. No, come on, Michael. What's your? You said about your hidden gem is uh, give us another one. But but there is one which does stand out, and I, it's it's the um, Pongo, the Manaik, which is on the headwaters of the Amazon, uh, oh. the Urubamba River. Never heard of it. Um, it's a long stretch of river. Probably, I don't know, sort of 30, 40 miles. Um, very turbulent. It's a lot of white water. Right. And it ends, it's a sort of canyon, and it ends in sudden, silent, gorgeous sort of stretch of calm water with, in the middle of the sort of jungle, with shiny black basalt rock running down into the river and, and water sort of slipping down the... Um, the sides of the rock into the water, huge butterflies and mm. all that. And at the far end of the of the canyon, the Ponga de Manaik, are two great sort of cliffs of rock. And it almost looks like um, um, a gateway. It looks like the pillars of a, of a, a fortress or something. And you f- sail between these rocks and then you are into the Amazon. Previously you're in the Urubamba. And so it's like the gateway to the Amazon. It's like a little sort of holding pen before you go down into the Amazon, which is, you know, in, in flat land and is kind of fair, is, is magnificent, but it's hot and it's sticky and it's rather sort of, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the Amazon coast is fairly, uh, uh, the banks of the Amazon, fairly boring. But this whole stretch of the Pongo de Manaic, which is, which is, um, is the canyon, is is spectacular oh, and, nice. and quite dangerous on the ships. It's one of the most hairy bits of any journey I've done. So not good boats. for seasickness. Potentially. Well, it'll cure you from seasickness, <laughs> yeah. I should think. But it's rather like, you know, I've been whitewater rafting in various parts of the world, mm. and you go to somewhere like New Zealand, and they can't wait to drive you full speed at a rock and then veer off at the last minute or throw you off a bridge and bounce you back but this is the real thing this is how people get about in the pongo there's no Mm. sort of uh, it's not being commercialized or anything like that but it was being in that little stretch of the water and the silence having Mm. got through a noisy um and i say quite kind of hairy bit of bit of waterway Mm. so that's yeah, I, I often think back there. If I get a bit stressed, I think that's what I think Good about. Kind of meditative something was stuff. settled, yeah. and it was something to do with the black sides of the rock and all that, mm. and the jungle being rather than threatening, being kind of rather generous and saying, you know, there's the water's coming out. You know, we're going to take you away from this. You can go into the Amazon or whatever. Mm, yeah. Glorious. Mm, yes. Well, we can't talk about hidden gems without touching upon your time in North Korea, because. That TV series and book was so fascinating for anyone who has a curiosity about travel, I think, because mm. when, when, when you say North Korea, for most people, it, it, it evokes politics instantly in their yes. minds. And you help to lift the lid on life beyond that. So what surprised you most about your time there? I suppose that the, the level of fear and manipulation was not nearly as obvious Mm. as I had expected. Interesting. I'd expected to be nervous throughout the time there, to have to trade off everything we did for something else. Yeah. Um, 
for a great deal more interference and also to see a, a cowed, submissive population. Mm. Now, I don't know, I, I, I absolutely accept that we didn't see all of everything about North Korea and it is a bit of a show state and clearly when we were taken there they wanted to show us things that were sort of, kind of um, as complimentary as possible. Oh, yes, the, em- the empty airport. But... We had negotiated with them. My director had been there on a recce, and we had made sure that we did, didn't, weren't just taken around monuments. We also went to see where people ate in the evening, um, spas or, or, or even farms where they just worked. Um, and if you go there, then you do get a glimpse of what life on the street is. They can't hide everybody away. No. Um, and I was really surprised that there was a unity of purpose there. That yeah, I'm sure it's very, very carefully manipulated by a very, very strong um, you, you know, controlling government. But it doesn't seem that way. And there weren't people with rifles everywhere, sort of standing over work teams and all that. Right. Somehow they'd subtle. sold they'd sold the idea of this small independent country oppressed by, you know, the Japanese for most of the 20th century, then bombed flat by the Americans during the war, but still, you know, hanging on to the the leadership that Kim Il-sung had given in the first place. And the Kim family remain uh, extraordinarily, you know, to, to absolutely sort of uh, loved and revered by the people there, not just loved and revered. And I talked to our guide, who was 28-year-old, very well-educated, sensible. She just said, we are, they are us. The the Kim family are us. Mm. Why would we say anything wrong against them? You know, Mm. they are are the same as us. So complete identity with this controlling government. How did that that make you feel to hear? Did it make you feel uncomfortable? Did you want to say, oh, you know... It's not just that. There's life beyond this. Or yes, I, 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 I did because um, the two guides spoke English very well, and I, I felt especially with So Yang that she was quite interested in where we'd come from and all mm. that. And you could talk to her, and I could show her pictures on my phone of our children and all that, and she would have the normal reaction. So up to a certain point, you could have very interesting and. and conversations and they had humor and all that but then suddenly it stopped you couldn't talk about the way the country was run you couldn't really talk about their ambitions for the future other than getting complete cliches back and that worried me because mm-hmm. i felt you know what, what's a bit we've, we've reached a sort of um, a wall there which mm-hmm. i can't sort of get over and i i i know I know that there are things they wanted to talk about. There's more they wanted to talk about. But I was aware of them being, of holding themselves back, not being held back, holding themselves back. And then I thought, well, maybe we go over there with all our sort of messages of, oh, question everything and doubt everything and all that. And they probably find that a bit disturbing. Hmm. Because... I think they. I think they've been told that the West is pretty sort of a decadent place, um, but um, also um, very powerful. And what they want to do, and what they have tried to do by spending so much on arms and weapons, mm. is to match the West right. power for power. Mm. So if you've got nuclear bombs, that's it. That's the ultimate. You know, in in gaining some respect and a position at the table. When you think what a <clears throat> what a very small country 
North Korea is. It is amazing, you know, how, how um, they, how important they become in politics in that area and in international politics. Mm. But they, you know, what they want to do is unify the whole of Korea, um, and I don't think that's going to happen now. Mm. And so, and and there are obviously injustices there. There are people in camps. I'm, I've been told, and I've no reason to disbelieve people who say that. So. It is quite sad. Mm. It is quite sad. If you were to remove all of that political narrative and see the country mm. for what it is, kind of like in a topographical type yes. of sense, is it a place that you'd think would be popular with tourists? I think so, yes. And oddly enough, they are very keen on attracting tourists. At one side, you've got the scientists developing nuclear weapons, but the, the other side, you've got North Koreans going to Disneyland near Paris and places in Florida to, to work out how best they can create a, um, a vacation environment and spending a lot of money in certain places on building these uh, huge sort of uh, sprawls of, of um, hotels and um, facilities for holiday makers. Um, and indeed, what we saw was the airport, um, which yeah. was there entirely to do with the hoped-for arrival of thousands of tourists. And it was a very marvellous airport, very clean, very very well run, but no planes there. No planes um, on that on that departures board. But they do want. You know, it's not that they it's not that they want to be closed off to the rest of the world. I think ideally, what they want is the world to come to them on their terms. And this is, I think, going to be the problem because mm. on their terms will keep a number of people away. Yeah. But topographically, mm. in the look of the place, it can be very beautiful parts. There's lovely coastline and all that, and, you know, mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not so, unattractive. Maybe, maybe we'll be able to add it to our travel wish list one day. I think a few people will, and mm. I, I, would, I would urge people who can bear it to try and go there because oh, it, yeah. it is fascinating. fascinating it really is yeah. and it taught me a lot more about what North Korea was about and uh, you know I, I didn't see it as, as a sort of a, a, um, an enemy mm. so chapter six then is your worst travel experience um well again there are many awful travel experiences I think eating um uh, camel liver that was past its sell-by date oh in a refugee gosh. camp in Algiers and I did it because we'd been there a week and these people who had very little were looking after us um, and um, on the Friday we were going to move on and there was a little bit of uh, camel left so, and, and the lady who looked after us around the house just Gave it, said, please try some of this. And I felt I ought to, you know, it must be hospitable. I knew as, mm. I, as it passed my nose, I shouldn't have done that. And then to have, for the next two days, having to work in between, you know, sort of throwing up at various oh, places gosh. in the middle of deserts in very uncomfortable circumstances. Um, I don't like feeling ill when I'm travelling. I mean, that, well, no, who likes feeling ill at any time? But sometimes it can really change the way you look at the world and the way you see the world. And I can remember being very ill as we were going on the train through Vietnam and, and 
normally beautiful countryside that I would absolutely love, but it's slightly tainted by the fact that you weren't feeling very well. You mm. couldn't take it in. You couldn't respond to it. Mm. You just wanted to be somewhere else. You know, when you sometimes you just want to be at home. Actually, well, you want to be at home. Bad, you want yeah. to be at home with a cup of bovril and a hot water bottle. Cup of bovril is yeah. that your tipple of choice? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I was we actually very very lucky. Most of the journeys we did, I never took a day off illness one just kept on filming That's so incredible. did so did the entire crew because mm. you couldn't really lose a day there are places i wouldn't go back to i wouldn't say it was my worst experience because it was a very enlightening experience but to go to the gulag remains of the gulag camps in the kolima region of uh, of uh, eastern russia you know russian far east and to take someone who had been in one of the gulags with you out there oh. to have to take him back and see it and the absolute and total desolation of the place where he had been incarcerated and where many had been incarcerated. People would come from, you know, Moscow and St. Petersburg. There were writers, there were journalists, there were people interested in travelling and all that and reading Russian literature. And they ended up, you know, having to dig uranium with their bare hands in this part of the world which you could never ever escape from I mean, just everywhere around was was it was so far away from everywhere else just so remote so yeah i was i was glad to see it in a way and see the remains of the camps because it made me realize how dreadfully utterly brutal and inhuman was the gulag system yeah and that it depended on the size of russia you could hide people away and no one would ever see them mm. you could do what you want to them Mm. Oh, so I was going out to get out of there. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. But as you say, some of these more difficult places um, are important, as you say, to to get a, a perspective of our history. Yes. Are you planning on making any more travel series? Well, um, I, I will travel, and we we have projects. The team I did uh, went to North Korea with. It was a very good team, really enjoyable to work with. And um, Neil Ferguson, who's the director and myself, have talked about going to other places. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably I'm slightly nervous of my health, only because I had a heart um, uh, operation last September um, to mend my valves in my heart and all that, which is fine. I feel all absolutely okay fine. Yeah. But, you know, you get to a certain age and also you kind of realise that these journeys take an awful lot out of you and you need an awful lot of stamina. And I, I'd, I'm really keen to go mentally. Physically, I think I've got to be a bit careful. I don't want to be the one who says, oh, I can't go on. You know, mm. you've got to, you, you realise when you do them, you've got to be working 12 hours a day minimum. You're writing down the diary for the book and all that sort of thing. You've yeah, got full-on experience. You've got to be yeah. full-on. And I'm not quite sure if I would really be up to a long journey. But shorter journeys, two weeks, three weeks away, yeah. Um, on the other hand, if someone said to me, you can't travel anymore, I've just got to stay in the UK. I wouldn't. It wouldn't be the end of the world. <laughs> Sorry, bad pun. Um, <laughs> end of seeing the world because I have, as I was saying to you earlier, I've just I've, I felt I've seen an awful lot of the world. I've been extraordinarily fortunate in in quite a short period of time. It wasn't till I was forty five years old and started doing around the world in eighty days. So it's only been over the last 30 years I've done this extraordinary extensive travelling. Yeah. And, 
you know, be able to be on the Royal Geographical Society for a bit, meet lots of other travellers and all that. It's been a full-on experience. And sometimes I think I just need to stop and reflect and take in what I've done and not sort of worry about ticking off countries in the future. But I will, I, I still love seeing places that I that are new and fresh and strange. Well, that leads different. me on very well to our final chapter, Sir Michael. That is chapter seven, which is what's at the top of your travel bucket list. Um, ideally, uh, Central Asia. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really want to go to Mongolia and, and um, the Stans. And, and particularly, I've been fascinated by the Altai mountain range, which is, you probably know, somewhere in the middle of Asia. Mm. Um, and so many sort of predators have come from the Altai Mountains, Genghis Khan and lots of other armies. And they've been very successful and they've swept down and they've, you know, sacked Rome, some of them, and and Persia and all that. And India have had tremendous influence on the history of that part of the world, of of that part of Asia. I'd love to know what it is about the Altai Mountains that brought this kind of, this energy, this determination to get out and, and, and... run the world was it just it's a terrible place and you just want to get away it can't be that they must have learned things there which they were then able to apply once they got to somewhere like persia there's been this excellent series um uh, by samira ahmed about art in persia uh, the art of persia mm-hmm. which just shows how successive conquerors came down you know on every hundred years as a fresh bunch came and took over persia but they all eventually stayed and left behind most beautiful artworks and all that so it fascinates me what what the connection is there between the, the history but that's rather a big that's a big thing to do I, I, and if i couldn't do that i'd be very happy just walking in the dolomites Mm. love the dolomites very nice wine too (laughs) yeah well thank you so much sir michael palin those were your travel diaries what a pleasure thank you well thank you yes nice to go over them (laughs) oh that was the legendary sir michael palin what an honor and pleasure it was to speak to him If you'd like to delve deeper into Michael's time in North Korea, pick up a copy of North Korea Journal, which is available from all good bookshops. Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd really appreciate it if you could give a rating or a review on the app that you're listening to. And don't forget to subscribe so that the episode comes straight to your phone each week. To find out who's going to be on next week's show, come and find me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear where you've been traveling. Have you been abroad yet? Are you planning a staycation? What's at the top of your travel wish list this year? Send me a message and I'll share some of your travel tips and recommendations in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for listening and I'll speak to you next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. 
It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos visiting some places that have been on my bucket list and while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.